I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The British government is falling apart over Gaza, over the Palestine crisis. And the British Labour opposition is doing its best to follow suit. Well, that's what opposition's generally do, isn't it? In today's democracies, they support the government to the hilt unless they can drive the hilt in just a little bit farther. Falling apart too is the monstrous war crime of the Israeli invasion and conquering. They even put their flag on the roof of a hospital on which they had trampled their military boots, killing patients Doctors, nurses, technicians, breaking every window, destroying every piece of equipment they could. A war crime by anyone's standards. But they climbed onto the roof and like Iwo Jima or the Reichstag, they raised their flag proudly above it. Makes you think, doesn't it? And Joe Biden appears to be falling apart in San Francisco. Not since the flower pot men has anyone looked so befuddled in the face of the leader of the new world order, Xi Jinping, the president of China. It's all going to be coming up tonight with three of the very best guests, a monologue that you might want to listen to and the best callers because it is the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Cruella Braverman. Yes, that's her name. The Home Secretary of Great Britain, the Interior Secretary, a very powerful position indeed, was sacked for the second time from the same position within the last 12 months. And it was over Gaza. Suella Braverman, to give her her preferred moniker, was the one who said, indeed ordered the police to treat the wearing of a kafia as a criminal offence. She told the police that she wanted the displaying of a Palestinian flag, not a Hamas flag, but a Palestinian flag, an internationally recognized flag, a flag that flies at the United Nations, a flag that adorns the British Foreign Office when a Palestinian leader comes to visit, that that flag also was to be treated as a crime, as the emblem of hate. She said that the hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million, on the last occasion, who were on the march for a ceasefire and an end to the siege in Gaza, were hate marchers. She may, however, have had a a conflict of interest in the matter, as she unguardedly let go 
that not only was her husband an ardent Zionist, but that she had close family relatives fighting in the Israeli army in Gaza. Not the normal kind of CV that a person holding down one of the great offices of state in Britain has to bear. But the last straw for Cruella Braverman's very brief and inglorious stint in the British Home Office was when she accused the Metropolitan Police, the British Police, London's police, of effectively being supporters of Hamas. They were, you see, according to Braverman, sympathetic to the hate marchers. They were not arresting enough kafia wearers. Uh, they were not earnestly enough hunting down any Palestinian flags outside of the British Foreign Office. She wrote an op-ed, as the Americans call them, in the Times, uh, the voice of the British establishment, in which she accused the Metropolitan Police of being lefties, of being left-wingers, sympathetic to left-wing demonstrators and antipathetic to those of her persuasion. Not that those of her persuasion can muster much in the way of numbers. Her dog whistle did bring a few hundred urinating, cigarette-smoking, alcohol-drinking, swaggering drunks of the British Football Lads Alliance down to the cenotaph, the epicenter in Whitehall, where British people traditionally mourn their dead and wish that there had been a ceasefire earlier in the conflicts in which they had fallen. The fascists aligned with the Football Hooligans Alliance turned out, I kid you not, like a pack of wild dogs at this hallowed place and promptly began swapping punches with the Metropolitan Police, who they presumably believed were Hamas-supporting, PLO-loving, left-wing men and women in uniform. No Home Secretary could survive it. I knew immediately and called for her dismissal immediately that she had written this article. And so it came to pass. She's been sacked now for the second time from Rishi Sunak's government this time. And who was the great beneficiary? Well, Britain's new foreign secretary is its old prime minister. Call me Dave, although you'll have to call him Lord Dave from now on because he isn't even a member of the British Parliament, not even an unelected member of the British Parliament. He has not yet been placed in the House of Lords, whose attractions he has vigorously, vigorously eschewed. Because, of course, if you're in the House of Lords, you've got to register your income and where it comes from. And people like David Cameron and Tony Blair, for that matter, are very not keen to do that. But David Cameron once had something very important to say about Gaza. In 2010, 
when he was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Let's hear it. It's very brief. Let also be clear that the situation in Gaza has to change. Humanitarian goods and people must flow in both directions. Gaza cannot and must not be allowed to remain a prison camp. Cannot and must not be allowed to remain a prison camp. These are very important words. Cannot and must not be allowed to remain a prison camp. The largest open-air prison camp in the world, said the Prime Minister of Britain in 2010. And yet the government, which he now adorns, has continued to treat Gaza as no more and no less than a prison camp. It has been allowed to remain a prison camp, despite the then Prime Minister's powerful words back in 2010. So powerful, I picked them up and retailed them a million times in speeches, articles, interviews, on television, in Parliament, on radio, on public platforms. I always quoted David Cameron describing Gaza as a prison camp. Now, a prison camp with 2.3 million people in it is a camp just waiting for somebody to break out of it, isn't it? And they would not be committing a crime by breaking out of it, would they? Because if it's a prison camp, which has no legal validity, if the people in the prison camp have never been tried or convicted of anything, they have every right, don't they? 13 years later, and don't forget that he said, remain a prison camp which lovers of the English language already know, means it was already a prison camp in 2010 when the Prime Minister, David Cameron, made those remarks. But it has been allowed to remain a prison camp. And the people who broke out of it on the 7th of October not only were committing no crime in doing so, they had an internationally legally enshrined right to resist those who had placed them for, in David Cameron reference again, decades. They had been illegitimately imprisoned in a prison camp. And so all these people who have mindlessly entoned since October 7th that Israel has a legal right to defend itself are factually, legally, completely wrong. The legal right belongs with the person in the prison camp to break out of it, to resist those who imprison him. It's they who have the legal right. Just like the Marquis in France were the people who had the legal right to fight back against their illegal military occupier. And the occupier had no legal right of self-defense whatsoever. Now, all of this is pedantry, really, because it's abundantly clear that there is nothing called legal 
rights in the world today. There is no law, there is no international law, there is no statute of war crimes, there is no statute of crimes against humanity. The Nuremberg Tribunal never happened, or if it did, what it decided was not worth the paper that it was written on. It is abundantly clear that there is nothing called the International Criminal Court. For if there was, it would already be laying charges, not just against the people who have massacred more than 5,000 children, babies, sucklings, children dug out of their mother's womb as she lay dead, who never even got to suckle. If there were anything called crimes against humanity, war crimes, an international criminal court, these matters would already be before it. Neither is there anything called democracy. It's a shamocracy. You get arrested for wearing items of clothing that are here today, gone tomorrow. Home Secretary announces to be a crime. In Germany, it is now a crime to use the slogan, stop the genocide. I mean a crime. I mean a crime that you'll be arrested for, that you'll be jailed for. There's no such thing as democracy when both the government and the opposition have absolutely identical policies in Britain, in the United States, in Canada, in most of the NATO countries that are up to their knees in Palestinian blood over these last five or six weeks. That's not democracy. It's not democracy when 75% or more of your people have already said in opinion poll after poll, they want a ceasefire, but only 59 Labour MPs and no Tory MPs can be found in Parliament this evening to vote for what three quarters of the British public want. There's no free speech in this country when the only way you can appear in the mainstream media is to ritually denounce a political organization in Palestine about which you know it seems virtually nothing. I know everything about them. I was there when they were born. Guess who the midwife was? Israel was the midwife of the Hamas that you now can't go on TV unless you denounce as a terrorist organization. Even if your own family has just been buried under the rubble. Even if 21 of your own family has just been murdered in Israeli airstrikes, you won't get past the first sentence in the British broadcast media unless you say, well, of course I denounce Hamas, not the people who murdered my 21 
relatives yesterday know. Kay Burley on Sky News interviewed a woman whose family had just been murdered in their own house. And her first question was, Israel is targeting this bombing, so why did they target your house? Well, anyone who isn't willfully eyeless in Gaza knows that they're not targeting anything or anyone at all. They are dropping the most horrifying ordinance on people trapped in a refugee camp or in David Cameron's words, in a prison camp from which there is no escape, even into the waves, even into the sea. So there's no democracy, there's no freedom of speech, there's no international law. We are living in a time of monsters and the monsters are us. The monsters are our leaders sitting in power in our countries, doing what they do on our dime, in our name. However many of us there are on the streets protesting against it. Ten Labour MPs were either sacked or resigned from Keir Starmer's front bench as he continued to insist that not enough Palestinian children have yet been killed to sate the satanic bloodlust of the war machine originating in Washington, echoing through its satraps in Western Europe and being executed, executed being the highly appropriate word by the satrap in the Middle East called Israel. This state of affairs will presumably continue. Although President Macron broke ranks, called for a ceasefire, the next day he did an about turn and dedicated the rest of his life and all of his remaining ardour to the cause of Israel everlasting. Schultz in Germany has said that we're all lunatics, that Israel is waging war according to international law and all of the tenets of humanitarianism. Either these people do not watch what's actually happening down on the street in Gaza, in which case they are cowards, or they do watch it, and they are still ready to support it in every way possible, by criminalizing their own populations, by sending weapons, sending warships, sending money, sending ammunition, or in the case of Britain, not even telling us what they are sending Dozens and dozens of flights of military transport aircraft have flown from England to Tel Aviv and the government refuses to tell its own people, even its own parliament, what or who 
is in those airplanes. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we have to face the facts. Contrary to what Joseph Borrell said, we are living in a jungle. This is now officially a jungle with no laws, no rules, no conventions, no constitutions. Just a jungle where the beast, who for the moment has the sharpest teeth, is in charge of the jungle and the devil can take the hindmost. You'll hear me talk quite a lot about Satan whose existence in the world I believe to be self-evident, but it is nowhere more evident than the savage ravings of Western journalists and politicians. I'm not sure which deserves the greater contempt over this great war crime that we are watching. The Al-Shifa hospital, it turns out, according to Channel 13 television, in Israel itself has turned out to be a massive intelligence failure. Their words, not mine. I'd say it was the mother of all intelligence failures. Al-Shifa hospital had not a single armed man in it when the Israeli armed forces invaded a hospital. As they trod on the injured, as they trod on the wounded, as they trod on the refugees huddling for warmth and safety, as they trod on the dead bodies of the Palestinian doctors, nurses and technicians, that they had killed on their way in, having told us, and this greenlit, though he now denies it, by John Kirby, the White House spokesman, as they entered what they said was, never forget what they said, that the Al-Shifa hospital was the command and control center of Hamas, that in its bunker, were Israeli hostages. The armed gunmen ran the hospital and that it was the epicenter of a series of tunnels. But tunnels, there were none. Command and control center, there was none. Hostages, there were none. Armed men, there were none. There were only dead bodies of patients, of children unplugged from incubators. There were only dead bodies. Do you get me? Only dead bodies in the Al-Shifa hospital. And that was the big lie on which they committed one of the worst war crimes, crimes against humanity that the world has seen since the Second World War. I have no idea how long I've been speaking. But I hope I have conveyed to you the power with which I feel that the people of Gaza are in a desperate place which may very well end up with them 
in Sinai, if not drowning in the sea. But we in the Western world are, if anything, in an even worse place than that. Imagine, we are in a place where everything that our fathers and grandfathers fought for, every freedom from fascism, from tyranny, that our people fought and died for, in our case in Britain, for a brief but glorious period, standing alone against fascism, Nazism, tyranny, the jackboot, we have gone quietly into that good night. This is the mother of all talk shows. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Loki was a rapper when I first heard of him. He's still a rapper and one of considerable note. Uh, but actually, he's become, in the interim, a professor of international politics of the highest rank, or at least he would be if there was any sanity in the world. He joins us again now on the mother of all talk shows. Loki, thank you uh, for joining us. Let's talk about the British Parliament uh, tonight, shall we? Uh, the Labour Party stands in uh, utter disgrace, terminal disgrace, perhaps. The government, not much uh, sturdier. What's your take? Well, what we have seen is even in Bethnal Green and Bow, the MP abstain from the vote for a ceasefire. And what I would say, George, is I think you are needed back there. Me and you stood together in Trafalgar Square. Me and you stood together in Gaza. And it is my hope and my dream that you and I will stand together in a liberated Jerusalem. Let's be clear. God willing. The British, the US, the EU, Israel and Japan are on the wrong side of history and the governments which represent those populations are in the minority. This Palestinian armed resistance is a right enshrined by UN Resolution 3246. The governments which designate Palestinian armed resistance as terrorism 
The UK government supposedly represents 67 million people. The US government supposedly represents 340 million people. The government of Japan, the EU and Israel, that's less than a billion people represented by governments that not only do not believe in a ceasefire, but also deem Palestinian armed resistance to be terrorism. What about the government of Switzerland? Who is more neutral than the government of Switzerland? Because they don't define Palestinian armed resistance as terrorism. What about the government of Turkey, several hundred million people it represents? They don't define Palestinian armed resistance as terrorism. What about the government of Venezuela? What about the government of Pakistan? What about the government of China? 1.4 billion people, 25% of humanity. They do not define Palestinian armed resistance as terrorism. The vast majority of humanity are represented by governments who see this situation in a far more clear way. The majority of people in the world understand themselves to be post-colonial subjects who emerged from colonialism, where decolonization was a positive process. These governments here are relics of the past. They don't believe all human life is equal. They don't believe that Palestinians are the same as any other people in the world. We are witnesses to a massive, massive crime here, George. Yes, uh, and it's the fact that the pretend or act as if that was not the case uh, that is uh, almost as galling as the crime itself uh, the the television presenters who want to put interviewees on trial over something else entirely instead of focusing on what they have seen they must have seen with their own eyes i i mean i've seen myself almost 5,000 children that have been killed in Gaza because I look at the images as they are produced. And these presenters, these members of parliament, they must have seen a significant number at least of these images. In what universe is it not a war crime to level a refugee camp in pursuit of one or even 10 people. In what universe is it not a war crime to bomb and then invade hospitals full of patients? Absolutely, and what's becoming clear is actually the Israeli military is the world's most cowardly army that has ever been. Not only are these soldiers used to bullying grandparents and children at checkpoints in El Khalil in Hebron, or bullying teenagers in Jerusalem. They are used to striking from the air at civilian targets. They are used to sniping from the edge of Gaza at people and forcing them to be amputees for the rest of their life. Like Ibrahim Abu Thureya, who already did not have legs. And this man, took part in the 2018 Great March of Return, which was Palestinians attempting to practice their right under UN Resolution 194, paragraph 11, and return home. And what happened to those people? They were snipered. That's what the Israeli military is used to. What it has proven is that in urban, hand-to-hand, street-to-street combat, they are useless. 
They are getting battered by the tens their tanks are going. But yet they are still launching airstrikes on civilian targets. And the greatest shame of all for the British is there has been direct participation of the British. We don't know the extent of it yet. In years to come, it will come out. Direct participation of US special forces, the Delta Force on the ground, all for a war which primarily consists of fighting a non-state actor by bombing civilian locations in a concentration camp of Gaza. The blood is on all of their hands, and we will never, ever let them forget this. Let's uh, deal with this uh, concentration camp point. Uh, as Norman Finkelstein said on this show uh, a matter of a few days ago, it's actually moved beyond a concentration camp to a death camp. But let's talk about David Cameron. If we parse his sentence spoken as prime minister, it is the position of Britain's new foreign secretary, ipso facto, that Gaza was a prison camp, must not be allowed to continue to be a prison camp, that the free movement of goods and people both ways must be reinstated. It was actually rather a good statement made by David Cameron as Prime Minister. How does he get out of that now that he's Foreign Secretary in a government that is massacring people in that prison camp? Well, unfortunately, across the last few decades, George, we have seen the integration of British and Israeli intelligence services. So, for instance, the Foreign Office, which David Cameron will now be in charge of, uses hacking software from Celebrite, which is an Israeli intelligence company founded by alumni of Unit 8200 in Israel's uh, military. It is the equivalent of GCHQ. It spies on Palestinian electronic communications and then blackmails them on that basis. And Celebrite is not only used by the Foreign Office, it's also used by the British police. Another program used by the British police is Nice Systems, which is a subsidiary of Israel's largest um, arms company, Elbit Systems. So the question here is the extent to which a foreign uh, Secretary of Britain will be able to act independently of Israeli diktats. You know, we can't forget the case of Alan Duncan, for example, when it was up the choice of him potentially being a foreign secretary. He found out, as you well know, George, that he was being lobbied against uh, relentlessly. And he wrote actually in his book that the conservative friends of Israel think they control the foreign office, and they probably do. And of course, Alan Duncan, who was uh, decidedly tepid, you know, in, in, in our terms, this was somebody that, yes, he recognized Palestinian rights within the 67 borders, but this was not somebody who was significantly challenging uh, Israel's dominance. But even he was considered beyond the pale for the Israel lobbyists and actually, unfortunately, the British establishment. That doesn't mean that there isn't a contingent within the British establishment who is opposed to what Israel uh, does. There is. But it's, uh, I would say, shrinking by the day, unfortunately. Though this situation has split our elites. It has split our um, media and political classes in ways that we must build on 
and work on going forward for sure. It's one thing being uh, a satrap, uh, a pet dog uh, for the United States of America, but you know, to go from once ruling the waves and having the biggest empire the world has ever seen to being a satrap of Israel is, uh, is uh, d diminishing and degrading indeed. But that's what's happened, isn't it? You've mentioned the intelligence tie-up. But we've also got a secret military agreement with Israel, uh, the terms of which have never been divulged. And what might be in those dozens of British military planes that are flying almost daily now to Tel Aviv? We'll never know. No one can find out. What kind of democracy is that? Absolutely. And it comes down to a question of sovereignty. How can Britain claim to have sovereignty when the very company which handles the data of the Ministry of Defense, Oracle, is led by Larry Ellison, who is the largest donor to the Friends of the IDF charity in its history? He is somebody that alongside its CEO, Safra Katz, an Israeli uh, woman, claim that their company um, puts Israel's um, security second to none, and that their employees can find another employee, if uh, another employer, if they have a problem with it. In addition to that, you have to remember that uh, Larry Ellison, the head of Oracle, which is the company that handles the Ministry of Defense's data, offered Netanyahu the directorship of the company, meaning that Netanyahu could have been the director of the company which handles the data of the British Ministry of Defense, the British Home Office, the British Foreign Office, and even the NHS. So really, you are talking about sovereignty as a, a non-existent concept when it comes to Britain today. Not only do we have 12,000 US soldiers on this soil, but also, as you've made clear, we have this secret military agreement with Israel, which... Um, implies God know what, God knows what. And unfortunately, these 33 plus flights that have gone throughout this period of time, I would say you could be forgiven for thinking that Britain is a direct participant in the bombing. We know that there's the British spy plane above occupied Palestine. What is that helping the Israelis with? We are in a serious bind here as a state. Lastly, and I'm grateful for your time as always, uh, what do you think the effect or impact will be uh, on Keir Starmer, his leadership, on the Labour Party? They've already shed uh, the, the love, if not the voting allegiance, we'll have to wait and see about that, uh, of uh, millions of people in Britain over their stance on this. Now they've had to sack uh, or, uh, or have resigned 10 uh, of uh, the Labour front bench. Where's all that going, do you think? Ultimately, what we need is a movement to push these Labour MPs who have for so long really existed in safe seats. So they've seen it as completely um, inconceivable that they could be voted out of their constituencies <laughs> because of how... Uh, um, how much the Tories are a toxic brand in these particular communities. But what needs to happen is individuals like Wes Streeting, who has his office costs in Ilford paid for 
by key Israel lobbyist Lord Mendelssohn and also his office costs paid for by key Israel lobbyist Trevor Chin. They need to pay a significant price in the voting uh, box and they need to lose their seats. We need to see Keir Starmer, who betted on breaking the back of support for Palestine to secure his leadership, seeing the support for Palestine breaking the back of his leadership. That's what needs to happen next. And we need you back in Parliament. Loki, many thanks for your kind thoughts and words and even more for your wisdom. You're a star. Thanks very much for joining us. I'll be right back after a short break. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. A former intelligence officer in the U.S. Marine Corps is no peacenik and there's nothing that he doesn't know about war. He also happens to be able to recognize the difference between a just and an unjust war, between an avoidable and an unavoidable war, and between a war that is being won and a war that is being lost. That's why he's so sought after. He's the unimpeachable source of truth about war in the world today. And I'm very glad he's regularly here on the Mother of All Talk Show. Scott Ritter, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, let's start with uh, with Gaza, uh, but I also want to talk to you about uh, Ukraine. I don't know if anybody remembers uh, Ukraine. Uh, we, we spent a few hundred billion dollars on it, but it's disappeared from the news agenda, and I want to ask you why and what's happening there. But let's, uh, let's start with the Iwo Jima moment, uh, or the Reichstag uh, Soviet flag moment, uh, when Israeli soldiers, having conquered the Al-Shifa hospital, climbed up onto the roof and planted their flag there. An ignominious moment, an ignominious end to a quite atrocious set of war crimes and crimes against humanity. At least that's how I see it. How about you? Absolutely. Look, the, the Israeli Defense Force has brought nothing but shame to it uh, for during the course of this entire campaign. Let's let's just be straight up honest. Uh, they were beat in a stand-up fight on October 7th by Hamas, and they were humiliated. And that humiliation is carried over into this operation that's taking place. This operation has very little to do with actually trying to accomplish legitimate military objectives and everything to do with exacting revenge on a helpless Palestinian people, because that's what Israel is up against. Uh, you know, Hamas, after carrying out what I call the most successful military raid this century, because it wasn't an act of terrorism, what Hamas did on October 7th was a classic military raid with classic military objectives, and they accomplished them all. Then they withdrew to prepared positions. That's the final act of a raid. Their prepared positions have to be happen to be underground um, as they are wont to be if you want to survive with Israeli air supremacy, etc. Um, 
And Israel has gone into Gaza knowing that they're not going to close with and destroy the Hamas enemy through firepower maneuver in classic military terms, that they're going to instead carry out collective punishment against the citizens of Gaza, the innocent Palestinian people. And um, they're not even hiding it now. In addition to these horrific visuals, I mean, you know, raising the flag over a hospital. Really? Look, I come from an organization whose defining moment is characterized by Marines raising the flag on Mount Suribachi. Of the 250 Marines that went up that mountain, 27 lived. 27 out of 250, because it was a real war. A real war. We earned the right to plant that flag on Mount Suribachi. These Israelis that put the flag above the Al-Shifa hospital, they should be ashamed of themselves. I hope that their pictures are taken, that their faces are recognized and broadcast around the world. So wherever they go to try and get somebody to buy them a beer for being a man, for raising the flag, instead people will spit in their face because that's all they deserve if they can walk out of Gaza alive because this battle ain't over yet. Hamas is still there. There's a lot of fighting left. George, I don't want to sound like I'm glorifying war. I'm not. My ideal solution right now is a ceasefire that brings an end to this conflict, gets gets the Israeli troops out of Gaza, gets peacekeeper troops in Gaza, and gets humanitarian supplies to the people that so desperately need it so that the international community can begin the business of talking about how do we make sure that this never happens again. That should be everybody's priority. It should have been Israel's priority on October 8th. Not to say how do we exact revenge How do we prevent this from happening again? How do we prevent an October 7th from ever happening again? Because everything that's transpired since October 7th has turned international opinion away from Israel. Had Israel taken a different stance on October 8th, a stance that said, we understand why this happened. This is painful for us. But we need now to recognize that the Palestinian people have to have a homeland. The only way to disarm Hamas is to give the Palestinian people a homeland. And then Hamas loses its right, its need for militancy. But that's not what Israel's doing. They claim they're trying to defeat Hamas. But understand this, Hamas isn't just fighters to be killed. It's an idea. It's an ideology that has taken root now. If you wanted to kill Hamas, Israel, you're doing the exact worst thing because Hamas now is being embraced by people who never would have embraced Hamas. The idea of Palestinian statehood is now mainstream like it's never been before. George, this is the greatest defeat Israel has ever suffered, and they don't know it yet. How much revenge uh, will satisfy uh, Netanyahu? Uh, It's 11,000 dead now, 74 0.5% of them women, children, and elderly people. Uh, Is 22,000 dead, 52,000 dead? Uh, How many dead uh, will it take to satisfy that thirst for revenge? Because you're right, they cannot, even Israel cannot kill 2.3 million people. Uh, Even our brain-dead politicians could not stand by whilst 2.3 million people were killed. So the killing is going to have to stop short of killing every Palestinian. The question is now, how far short? Well, the problem is, George, and you know this, 
the Israeli government has been hijacked by literally this criminal right wing element that is imbued with a notion of Israel that nobody in the world supports, nobody in the world can support, the notion of a greater Israel, an Eretz Israel, one that has no Palestinian people. You know, Hamas, and and again, I understand, but is condemned for, you know, from the river to the sea, because people interpret that as anti-Semitic. You want to annihilate the Jewish population. But you know who invented it, George? You know who invented it. The Likud Party invented it. It's the original motto of the Likud Party. From the river to the sea, no Palestinians there will be. That's their theme. That's what they do. And now they have a government that is bringing this to life. So when you say how many, George, all, they want them all gone every single one of them, and they're not even hiding it now. These rabbis are preaching to the troops, saying, get them all, kill them all, get rid of them all. The Israeli government is talking about getting them all out of Gaza, driving them out somewhere. They don't care because they don't view the Palestinians as humans. I mean, this is the worst aspect of what's going on here. Politics is tough. You know that. You're a politician. Um and, and sometimes people take hard stands and bad things are done. But this isn't politics, George. This is hate. This is pure, unadulterated hatred. And what kills me, what kills me is no matter how you feel about Hamas, no matter how you feel about Hamas, you have to understand that you can't embrace an action undertaken by Israel that dehumanizes an entire people. The Israelis are not crying about the babies, George. The Israelis are not crying about the women. They're definitely not crying about the men. They don't care. They've hardened themselves to the point where they no longer view the Palestinians as humans. And as so long as your government and my government have this see no evil, hear no evil, say no evil approach about Israel, where Israel is cannot be criticized, The killing will continue. The only way this stops is when our politicians demand that it stops. But we, so far, don't seem to have an upper limit, which speaks volumes, speaks volumes about the people whom we have put in office. You know, we are democracies, George. We elect people to represent us. And if those people truly represent us, It doesn't say much about us collectively as Americans and British because we're standing by. Yes, we fill the streets with people demonstrating. And I applaud everybody who went out to demonstrate. But we need to step it up. And I'm not talking about violence, George. I'm not. I'm all in on the nonviolent thing nowadays uh, because war only begets death and destruction. I've learned that hard lesson. I'm about not going to war. But we need to find a way to send a signal to these people. Where is corporate America? Where are the donors? Where are the people that give money to the politicians that get them into office? Why aren't they calling up? Why aren't we calling them saying, hey, you do a business that allows you to make money, to donate money to a politician? You don't do business anymore, pal, until you get on the phone and you say, stop the killing in Gaza. That's what we have to do. We have to stop it now. Every day we don't do this, George. 
you know what's going on. Hundreds of Palestinians are dying, but we stopped caring. Yeah. Once you see those photographs, you become immune to those photographs. And that's what's happened. It's a, it's a bloodlust exhaustion where we have seen so much horror. It's filled our eyes and filled our minds that we become numb to it. We can't become numb to it. We should cry ourselves to sleep every night in shame, collective shame, about what's happening in our names. Because this isn't an Israeli crime, George. This is an American crime. This is a British crime. This is a European crime. This is a global crime. Every human being on this planet is guilty of killing these people because we're not doing anything to stop them. The damn Arabs and Muslims met in Riyadh and didn't do a damn thing. Excuse my language. I apologize using French on your show, but they didn't do anything, George. Nothing. They talked, talked, talked talked, but when they had the chance to use the one weapon that could actually turn the tide, the oil weapon, they wouldn't even consider it because money is more important than blood, apparently. Wow. Well, that uh, soliloquy will live long, I predict. Let me uh, ask you to, if you will, segue uh, to that war that everyone's now forgotten about. Uh, the one that completely dominated uh, more than a year of our lives, filled all the information space, got people banned and suppressed and, and, uh, and censored, and uh, you and me uh, among them. Uh, that war that was so important that we must uh, impoverish our economies to influence the outcome, must uh, pony up hundreds of billions of dollars to keep going. What's happened to that war? Yeah, George, uh, about a month ago, I did an interview with a, um, a Ukrainian journalist. Uh, she's from the, the Donbass, uh, but you know she's ethnic Russian, but Ukrainian, and a lot of connections with the Ukrainian community. And I told her straight up, I said, you do understand that no one in the West likes you. No one cares about you. That don't don't misinterpret our willingness to give you money and equipment and everything. All we're using you as is a tool to hurt Russia. But we don't care about the price you pay. We care nothing about you collectively or as a people. And when the time comes, we will drop you just like we drop everybody else. You know, for decades, we spoke about how important it was to be in Afghanistan. If we don't fight them over there, George, we have to fight them here. This is the most important. This is an existential struggle. This defines who and what we are collectively. This fight in Afghanistan, then bam, gone. Overnight, finished. We don't even talk about Afghanistan anymore. And we should because of the horrors that we've inflicted on those people that continue to this day. But we've forgotten about them because we never really cared about them, George. We don't care about the Ukrainian people. And what's happened right now is we have found a brighter laser beam to chase. You know how you take a kitten in a room and you shine the laser beam on the wall and the cat gets distracted? We just got distracted by the Israeli laser beam and we ain't coming back to Ukraine. This was a losing proposition for a long time. Politically, it was difficult to acknowledge it, but now we've Israel has provided political cover for people to say, well, we have a bigger priority, especially in the United States. It's over for Ukraine, George. Now, when I say over, understand, and I and I point this out to everybody. You know, in World War II, the United States, we lost a lot of guys. Not anywhere near what the Soviet Union lost, but we lost a lot of guys. The bloodiest month for the American army in Europe, the bloodiest month wasn't the Battle of the Bulge, wasn't Normandy wasn't the battle for France. 
It was April 1945 after it was all over because the Germans still fought. They went down kicking and screaming. They fought for every inch. And we lost more men in April 1945 than we lost in any other month in the war. And the reason why I bring that up is people can look at the violence that's going on right now between the Russians and Ukrainians. It's still a very violent war. I've just interviewed a couple guys from the front line, and the stories they tell will bring you to tears. But Russia has won this war. The war is over. It's fundamentally over. It's strategically over. The military math cannot be reversed by Ukraine. They are simply burning through manpower and equipment at a far greater rate than it can be replenished. And now the United States is turning off the spigot. They're down to about 2% left of the available funding, and Congress isn't in any rush to give them any more money. Germany has ponied up a great big $8 billion package that uh, includes 10 old tanks. I mean, again, I feel sorry because 10 old tanks equates into 50 dead Ukrainians. Five men per tank. The tanks will be destroyed. That's it. But we don't care. We never have cared about Ukraine. And that's the fact. We are going to wake up sometime in the near future to find that Russia has determined the outcome of this war on terms that are acceptable to Russia, that they will dictate these terms to a defeated Ukrainian state, and the West will have no say whatsoever in this outcome. And then we will have to pray that the Russia is the Russia that I believe it is, not a vengeful Russia, not a Russia looking for expansion, but a Russia that will turn to the difficult task of rebuilding that which has been destroyed by this horrible war and looking to find some way to get a new European security framework in place between Europe and Russia so such a war never happens again. But George, this this war is over. It's tragic. I feel sorry for the Ukrainian people because we sold them a bill of goods. And every, and the, you know, the United States has a huge role to play here. But Boris Johnson's the guy that kept this war going. This war could have ended on 1 April. There could have been a, tr- a peace treaty signed between Russia and Ukraine on 1 April that gave Ukraine all of its territory except Crimea. 400,000 Ukrainian men would be alive today. 20 million Ukrainians would have homes that don't that don't exist today. Millions of children, and we understand the importance of education and stability for the education for the future of these children. These children are permanently displaced now. Their future is ruined. Um, this is all on Boris Johnson. This is on the British people. This is on the United States. This is on the American people. This is on Europe. We are all guilty of condemning the Ukrainian nation to decades, decades of pain and suffering. Quite extraordinary interview, quite an extraordinary man. Scott Ritter, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Should uh, Israel be expelled from the United Nations? Well, 26,577 people have now voted. Have your say. Let's try and get that to 30,000 if we can by the end of the show. Now, the Congo is a very important country to me. Uh, In my own home, you'll find many pictures of the greatest of all African leaders, Patrice Lumumba, murdered by colonialism, British, Belgian, and American colonialism. uh, And the people of the Congo regularly, repeatedly drowned in blood. There are now 7 million displaced people in the Congo. And we'll be talking to an expert, William Sakwa, 
after this short break about what's actually going on in the Congo. Stay tuned. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. William Sakwa is one of our friends, friend of the mother of all talk shows, African Stream, from whence he swims, is a long-standing and very deeply rooted friend of the mother of all talk shows. It was our intention to begin to shift some of our emphasis towards Africa before other things erupted and commanded almost all of the oxygen of the show. But we are determined to shine a light on where colonialism is still rearing its ugly head. And one of those is in the Congo. I feel sure that William Sakwa will explain. William, thanks for coming back on the mother of all talk shows. Just for those who are unaware, and that will be most people in Western countries, what exactly is happening in the Congo right now? Thank you very much, Mr. Gallo. It's a real pleasure to be back on your show. Now, for what's happening in the DRC, the current situation, as you stated, it's 7 million people are currently displaced from their homes. And remarkably, 200,000 of those alone uh, were displaced in October. Now, what's been happening in DRC, like in many other places in the global south, has been called the resource cast by much of uh, Western mainstream media. But the reality is that it's it's not really a resource cast. It's uh, the fact that the West exploits uh, the resources of these countries to their benefits, ensures instability takes place, and no place like has as much evidence of this going on as the DRC. And we can remember going as uh, maybe even as far as Latin America, where the CIA was involved during the banana revolution, where it installed a leader favorable to the interest of American companies. The same, same case uh, happens in DRC, except this one starts way, way back. Uh, if, I mean, for the common person, you know, one of the most evil figures of the 20th century, and no doubt about that, that's a very evil person, you know, is Hitler. And Hitler is, uh, reviled because he killed six million Jews. Definitely a terrible thing. But what's a figure that's often forgotten is uh, King Leopold, who in the DRC murdered no less than 15 million Congolese people. And uh, the process in which these massacres took place was really inhumane, where, you know, to certify that a soldier had not wasted a single bullet, you know, maybe saving it for something else, shooting game, they had to bring back the hand of the victim. And uh, these men were used to enforce quarters for rubber, which, uh, you know, was needed as the automobile industry in Europe was developing. Rubber definitely was needed to make the tires. And uh, 
the horrific uh, kind of conditions even pushed the colonialists themselves to say, uh, Leopold, this is this is too far. Let's take this from you and give it to uh, the Belgian government itself to run it. And what's uh, you know, tragically funny is that the reason Leopold was given the DRC is because, you know, there was no agreement on how best the DRC could, could be split because it's the crown jewel of Africa. And the colonialists during the Berlin conference couldn't quite decide on how to go about it. So since then, uh, DRC got its independence. And as you said, you know, you have, you know, you know the figure Lumumba quite well. And Lumumba's only crime was that Congolese resources should be used for the development of Congolese people. And at the time, the Belgium had occupied Katanga, which is amongst the areas with the highest concentrations of uh, minerals like copper. And this will deprive the Congolese economy definitely of a huge part, chunk of what will have gone to its development. And he first went to the United States and tell them, you know, help me get uh, Belgium out. They refused the UN refused. So he turned to the USSR. And that's when the CIA, alongside the Belgian government, decided, no, this is unacceptable. Congo is too important for us. And so they murdered Lumumba, dissolved his body, Nasi, bones and everything, and just left a single tooth. So basically what's happening in Congo, just to summarize, is that the West won't let Congo breathe. Congo sits on top of $24 trillion worth of resources, but we still somehow hear Congolese people are starving. It just doesn't make sense. The river Inga itself could power the whole of Africa with electricity and even export to the Middle East and Europe. But somehow Congo is at the very bottom of human development indices. How does that make sense unless there's a, you know, intentional sabotage of such a wealthy country? Who are these insurgents in the eastern part of the country? Who's behind them? Whose interests do they serve? Mm. Now, the role of the uh, insurgents in the eastern DRC is to basically loot the minerals in, in Congo. Uh, we know Congo is so rich in minerals that you could literally just pick a hole and go dig and you'll have minerals, you'll have something to, to sell to, you know, middlemen and whatever. Now, in DRC, you are the most famous. There are over 100 armed groups operating in Congo. But the one that has uh, stolen the spotlight is the M23, which is a Tutsi, mostly a predominantly Tutsi group. And the reason for its existence in its current form was after the genocide in Rwanda in 94, there was a push to hunt down the Hutu uh, militia that were responsible for what had happened in Rwanda. And unfortunately, this was pretext basically to occupy DRC and ensure uh, minerals are exploited or stolen from DRC. And this has been ongoing for the longest time. And we can clearly see the, the West role in this because as early as 2002, the West kind of had uh, seen the dots connecting Rwanda, the M23. There are generals who are serving in the M23 that were previously serving in the Rwandan army, you know, that kind of stuff. And instead of, you know, since the West realizes, okay, Rwanda is violating the territorial integrity of a neighbor, let's do something about it. The UK financed half of Rwanda's budget. 
So how is this supposed to discourage, say, if Rwanda is backing the M23? How is that supposed to discourage Rwanda from backing the M23 more? Where are the consequences for actions? Unless, of course, if you look at a company like Glencore, which is listed in the London Stock Exchange, it operates in the DRC and has a long, long history of bribery, uh, child labor, uh, ecological destruction. And again, you know, Western companies profiting from the minerals in DRC and using proxies like the M23, which are facilitated in Rwanda by Rwanda. And not just Rwanda, maybe not with just uh, wholly blame Rwanda. Uganda is involved as well. I think a year or two years ago, Uganda was forced to pay $250 million for basically violating uh, Congo's territorial integrity. So it's an issue where, you know, we have Museveni, who was trained by the West, and Kagame, who was also trained by the West, being used to facilitate the exploitation of the DRC. And again, just to hammer home the role uh, Britain plays in the exploitation of Africa, we have uh, 101 British-listed companies that control five minerals worth 1.1 trillion US dollars. And if these companies extract a trillion dollars a year from Africa, why doesn't that reflect on the ground? Well, uh, Rwanda is so respectable a country in Britain that our former Prime Minister, uh, Tony Blair, has a deep and intimate and no doubt lucrative relationship with it. So It's so respectable, Arsenal football team, uh, is uh, sponsored by it. You can see the name Rwanda on their uh, shirts. It's so respectable. Uh, Suela Braverman, as was, uh, wanted to send our refugees there. Why does Rwanda get such a free pass for involvement in such significant crimes? Uh, not just Rwanda, but all across Africa, we have uh, these called so-called puppet states of the West. Uh, where, I mean, just going back to Rwanda's case, for example, there really is no reason for Rwanda to be taking uh, migrants from the UK to Rwanda. Because what's so special about Rwanda that the UK cannot provide? I mean, for instance, the UK is a much wealthier country. And we can argue the UK is much better placed to maybe cater for the needs of migrants than, say, uh, Rwanda. But what we have is the, the money that it will most probably not trickle down to the average Rwandan, but stick to the elite is being used to make Rwanda take in refugees that, you know, the UK just doesn't want to deal with since apparently migration is a big issue in Europe now. But overall, I think it's just basically an issue where we have puppet states willing to do everything to please whatever the West wants. Let's uh, look at Kenya's uh, case, for example. Um, Kenya now says it will send police to Haiti, but only because the United States said, said it will foot the bill up to $200 million, but obviously expected to increase as maybe the mission increases in scope. And in exchange, we now have, uh, you know, the visits by the British King to Kenya. Uh, we have the U.S. ambassador being almost like, you know, Kenya's executive, you know, marketing director. So, yeah, we can see this sort of a give and take where, you know, within the between the puppet states and their and their masters. And personally, I think it's unfortunate because it seems we are switching our wagon to, you know, an obviously failing world order when a new world order seems to be born. And Africa should play a bigger role in its creation than simply being, you know, a, a puppet, a vassal of the West. 
I don't know what the poor Kenyans did to deserve a state visit from King Charles and Queen Camilla. But William Sakwa, we know that you know and that you'll keep us informed. Thank you very much indeed and the best of luck to African Stream, one of the most important outfits in the world today. Last call, I think, maybe two. Bobby in London. Go ahead, Bobby. Uh, watch it, George. Uh, quick, um, full disclosure, I'm sort of still trying to make my mind up out of all this. I'm trying to read from people that I respect you being one of them. Um, obviously, it's quite okay. important views are re represented properly. And obviously, because it can affect their cause. So I saw briefly the interview with um, Morgan and Corbyn. And I've got to be honest, I thought Corbyn looked a mm. bit like a plonker. Um, what would, because obviously just someone who doesn't, you still get scripts of this, it just looked like he was almost okay in fact. Now I don't know anything about the mass and whether they are or not terrorists, I'm not too sure. But the way he responded to it made it look to me like maybe Morgan was being like, I don't know, I'm just trying to make my mind over it. What would you say about yeah. all that and how? It's quite how, a how long it, time, 20, yeah, it's quite a long time, 20 years probably since Piers Morgan was right, and he certainly isn't right uh, about this. I didn't watch the Jeremy Corbyn interview with Piers Morgan. Uh, I would normally watch anything from Piers Morgan anyway, but I definitely don't want to watch the interview with Jeremy Corbyn. I have heard people say that Corbyn uh, didn't handle himself as well as he might, uh, but it's a bit difficult anyway when you're being asked the same question. 16 times, I think it was, at least reportedly, 16 times. I would have answered it this way. Uh, like the African National Congress, led by Nelson Mandela, uh, the ANC did certain terrorist acts that were indisputably terrorist acts. But that didn't make Nelson Mandela the leader of a terrorist organization. Only a fool like the South African apartheid regime and Margaret Thatcher could think that. Because, of course, the African National Congress was left with no choice but to take up arms against the criminal regime which had uh, banished uh, the political leaders uh, to Robben Island. Those who make as President Kennedy said, those who make peaceful change impossible uh, make violent change inevitable. And that's what happened with the ANC. That's what happened with the PLO. That's what's happened with the Palestinians in Gaza, uh, with Hamas, who are the dominant political trend there, but by no means the only uh, political trend there. So. Uh, no, Hamas are not a terrorist organization, though, like the ANC, they have committed terrorist acts. What are terrorist acts? I gave a definition earlier. I'll give it again. Harming innocent people for the crimes of guilty people is a terrorist act. And insofar they have done that, that deserves to be described as terrorism. But the much, much, much bigger terrorist is Netanyahu.
Is Joe Biden? Is Rishi Sunak and the British state, the French state, the German state? These are terrorists on a gargantuan scale compared to men with Kalashnikovs, AK-47, bursting out of a concentration camp in a great prison camp breakout, as David Cameron might have put it. Last call is from Zedu, Z-E-W-D-U, Zedu, forgive me if I've got the pronunciation wrong, uh, from the Caribbean on international law. Go ahead. Thank you, George, so much for taking my call. I listen Welcome. to your show all the time. Um, I, I just want to tell you that what you're doing is so great because we are living in a world of darkness and only truth, which is light, can balance this darkness that we're living in. Um, Indeed. Also, uh, one of your callers made a good point um, with this Semite and anti-Semite. We shouldn't forget even the Ethiopians are considered Semite because they speak a Semitic language. Yes, um, yes it, it's that's very, right. It, it's very easy now for people who don't dig a little deeper to get straight away by the fact that all the people who are considered um, Semite are being called anti-Semitic because they stand up against evil. And also, um, I wanted to ask you as a, a person that's seasoned in politics and, and uh, international law and those kind of things, it seems as if that if you are poor, you have no rights. But if you are rich, you have all the rights. You can even break international law, commit crimes of, against humanity, and still uh, be outside enjoying the fruits of other people's labor. So as a person that's seasoned in politics, what advice would you give to the people who are not rich enough to defend themselves in such a world? Um, what, what advice would you give to those people to, to, um, to, to at least try to create a better future for the majority of people who does not have that kind of uh, uh, money to, to defend themselves in such a world? What a beautiful call. Uh, what a magnificent question. Uh, one which it's beyond me at this hour to fully explore, but uh, a poet from my city of Dundee uh, wrote a peon to the jute uh, workers of whom my grandparents were all four. Uh, and she said, her name was Mary Brooks Banks, and she said, Oh dear me, the world's ill-divided. Those that work the hardest are the least provided. And that was true a hundred years ago when she wrote it, and it's as true as it was today, and scaled up, it is true of the countries and nations of the world, as well as the individuals within each particular uh, country. The only, if I was to answer you in one word, it would be the word combination. Unity is strength. That if we can make common cause with those others amongst us who seek justice, 
economic justice, political justice, juridical justice, social justice. If we can make common cause with others who wish to live under that kind of ethos, then we are many and they are few. By definition, there are very few rich people in any one country by comparison with the number of people who are poor. There are many poor countries by comparison with the number of rich countries. We all have the power to combine, the power to unite with others and to build the kinetic political energy that will be required to make change in each and every country and to make change in the relationship between the countries of the world. That's happening now. President Xi is in San Francisco right now. The red carpet is being rolled out for him. The streets of San Francisco have been cleaned for the first time in decades so as not to embarrass the United States uh, in him seeing the filth and squalor that San Francisco has become. As a metaphor, it's a pretty good one. China is where the sun is rising. San Francisco is almost the epitome with places like Philadelphia and many, many others of the extent to which the sun is sinking in the West. A new world is being born. New combinations, new unity of the countries of the BRICS, the countries of the Shanghai Cooperation, the countries of Latin America more and more united in the teeth of the hegemon to their north. I hope that the Caribbean will play a significant part in that in the years to come. The West represents a tiny part of the world's population, but a huge part of the world's distribution of wealth. But even inside the West, it's a bitterly cold night in Britain, and there are many people who cannot afford to heat their homes and whose children went to bed with insufficient calories within them. I've gone on far, far too long, but I just enjoyed the show so much, I couldn't bring myself to stop. I hope you're still watching, and moreover, that you'll watch again on Sunday at the earlier hour, remember, of 7 p.m. UK time. God knows what will have happened between now and Sunday. But be sure, we'll have the best guests on the mother of all talk shows to educate all of us in this global university of the airwaves.